Hi, everyone. Today is July 29th, 2020, and welcome to another episode of The Well-Read Investor, the podcast that profits your mind and your money. Today, we are truly delighted and honored to have noted economist and professor Dr. W. Brian Arthur on the show. With a list of accomplishments really too long to list, which includes the 1990 Schumpeter Prize in Economics, Dr. Arthur's wide-ranging career spans numerous books and publications, over a decade teaching at Stanford, and currently he's an external professor at the Santa Fe Institute and a visiting researcher at the System Sciences Lab at the Palo Alto Research Center for Technology. Dr. Arthur is best known for his foundational and iconoclastic work on complexity economics, which he began in the 80s and continues today. Listeners have heard us discuss this term complexity before. Standard economics, as is still taught widely today, is based on the idea of a super-rational person operating in a static world of constant equilibrium. Complexity economics, though, sees a world in which there's perpetual novelty and newness, where market systems and people adapt to each other over many iterations and in real time. In this worldview, decisions are made with incomplete information, often distorted by behavioral and cognitive biases, and yet the sum of it all still frequently produces reliable price signals. That might seem like an obvious description of the markets today, but it wasn't 40 years ago, and it happens to be ideas I am greatly influenced by. In fact, Dr. Arthur is something of a personal hero of mine. His ability to synthesize the topics of economics with technology, complexity, physics, and so much else is only matched by his ability to communicate those things very clearly. Part of that is the warmth and regard for real people in Dr. Arthur's work I think you'll notice throughout this interview. And in true well-read investor archetype, his wide-ranging literacy is quite evident. Today we'll focus on his 2014 book, Complexity and the Economy, a compilation of his most famous and influential papers with retrospective commentary, as well as his widely lauded 2011 book, How Technology Works. Both very much contain ideas investors will be interested in. This interview was conducted via Skype in February this year with Dr. Arthur in Palo Alto. Enjoy. Brian, we always ask our authors, why should every well-read investor read your book? The economy isn't a set of equations. It's not quite a mechanistic entity. It's not like a big power station. The economy, if you look at it, is, I think, best described as a story of events triggering other events, people intervening. And I think that the people who do very well in investing happen to be very highly trained in thinking of narratives, thinking of stories and understanding human behavior. I think there's a lot to be said for understanding human nature, understanding human stories, and thereby understanding the story of the economy, the narrative that's playing out as the economy changes and evolves and unfolds. Now, when you were thinking about all these issues, it's not as if complexity was a main topic or a mainstream topic by any stretch. So how did you start to think about this and and how did all that begin? After I'd done a lot of development work, economic development in in the 1970s. I became a professor of economics and population studies here at Stanford. But I was very much interested in tech and technology. 
So I've been very interested in the technological phenomenon that point to, say, Facebook or Google. If something gets far enough ahead, if all your friends are on Facebook and it's year 2005 or whatever, MySpace is available, most of your friends start to be on Facebook. So I noticed that tech companies or the technological economy worked according to positive feedbacks. If something gets ahead, it would get further ahead. All the economics I'd learned was that if something gets far enough ahead, it would run into diminishing returns, higher costs, more difficulties, more regulation or whatever, and everything would reach a balance or an equilibrium. I started to look at systems or see systems that didn't have a balance or equilibrium, very unstable. The more something happened, the more it happened. And the companies that emerged as huge companies, Google or Microsoft or Facebook, might not have emerged had it not been for either a really good strategy early on or, or a lot of luck. I wrote this up in 1983 and uh, it was considered a horror because this was the period of the Cold War. I was basically saying a lot of the economy emerges by luck. That was not very popular in the 1980s. Now this is considered gospel here in Silicon Valley, and uh, it all worked out. Now, sort of the mid to late 80s, you get started at the Santa Fe Institute, and some of that comes together with putting together prominent economists, including people like Kenneth Arrow, of course, but then also, ironically, physicists. And for all the talk about narratives and all of that, you bring together the physicists. So how did that go, and what were the difficulties with that? Well, in sometime around 1987, Kenneth Arrow, who's a Stanford economist and a mentor of mine, asked me to go to a meeting at the Santa Fe Institute. Santa Fe Institute in 1987 was barely starting. It was a startup. Physicists and scientists were going to meet economic scientists for about 10 days and have a, an enormous exchange of ideas. We did. That meeting turned out to be very significant. And Santa Fe Institute decided that the first research program they wanted to have was on the economy as an evolving complex system. I was asked to be in charge of that, so I was in charge of this first program at Santa Fe. And so what was the reaction of those types of ideas meeting each other for the first time? That's a really excellent question. I, I think that. We came together, our ideas had been largely ignored in standard academia. We all discovered each other and it was like a bunch of Cinderella's who'd been excluded, discover that there are other people just like them. So I felt that going to Santa Fe was worth five years of intensive therapy. That uh, <laughs> all the horrors I'd been through and that others had been through were vindicated that I was meeting people just like me. One of the things I really enjoyed in Santa Fe was that there were no boundaries. So I found Santa Fe Institute to be wild. We were all strange and weird, but we got along extremely well and we were doing things that I thought were groundbreaking or at least interesting at the time. 
Now, one of the most fascinating, I think, insights about some of your work is that when you talk about people and people having their own stories and subjectivities, in fact, they have their own stories and their ways of seeing the world. And, and when they work together, often what you might call efficient outcomes or relatively efficient outcomes can happen with people by process, just by going through process. And so you, you worked on something called the L. Farrell problem, which sort of illustrated some of this. Is that right? Yeah, <laughs> talking about a story. There's a bar in uh, on Canyon Road in Santa Fe called El Farol. I used to go there on a Wednesday night, and they had Irish music on a Wednesday night. And you know, it occurred to me, having gone to this bar dozens and dozens of times, that if you went there and it was horribly crowded, it was very unpleasant. So. But if there were very few people there and they were playing music, it was a great place to be. So I asked this question. Suppose there was a bar somewhere called El Farol and a hundred people independently were trying to figure out should they go to the bar that night? How should they figure this out? Standard economics said, oh, they'd all come to a similar conclusion. But that wasn't what I was seeing. So this presented a kind of paradox. If everybody had a little forecasting machine on their desk and the forecasting machine said there's going to be 95 people tonight at El Faro, they would all decide not to go. So that forecasting machine would be ruled out. So I really invented this problem because it came out of reality. Economists were a little bit slow to recognize this when I published it in 1994, but the problem became famous in physics. It became one of these little toy problems like the prisoner's dilemma, there's the alpha bar, where if you got the problem, it was a bit like getting the joke. You know, if everybody wants to go to this bar, nobody will go, because <laughs> they think everybody else will want to go. Etc. So, if everybody wants to invest in a stock, then that might be good or bad, but you have to sort of think this is actually investing is based upon expectations or forecasts. And sometimes those expectations can be self reinforcing or sometimes they can be self negating. And that's what fascinated me. Now, there seems as if there's a lot of work going on in narrative analysis, certainly in the behavioral sciences and economics. Do you think that the direction of that is good? Are you excited by the direction that's going? Well, there's a new field that's very much taking over the center of economics called behavioral economics. Uh, not so much how rational, perfect, platonic people, cyborgs or whoever they are, should behave, but how human beings actually behave. And I think that's very healthy. But what's missing is an overall logical framework. If you want to view the economy more as a story and less as a machine, or more as an organic, highly connected entity that's unfolding and playing out, you need a new framework. And that's what my group and Santa Fe have been trying to provide. So what is the real difference between standard economics and complexity economics? Standard economics views the economy as a well-balanced machine. 
and occasionally it gets a bit out of balance, you have to tweak it and it goes into equilibrium or better balance. Um, complexity economics is a different point of view. It's saying there's all kinds of different parties in the economy, there are investors, there are entrepreneurs, there's startups, there are consumers, there's government agencies, there's banks, and in the various different problems we're looking at, we don't look at that particular situation as a machine. We're looking at it more as an ecology, but as different groups or species of players or entities, little companies or technologies that are vying to survive and to thrive in a situation that's created by other entities and technologies. It's a shifting point of view. And one of the things that fascinates me at the moment is that science is not so much looking at how things are, it's changing now and looking at how things become. So complexity is very much part of that. Complexity science doesn't ask how systems are. If you're looking at the formation of a galaxy, you're asking how did such systems come into being? How did they form? One of the things that's important, it seems to me, about your ideas is the idea of pretty constant, if not perpetual, novelty. And I want to ask you about that in relationship to your theories about technology. One of the things that really changed my thinking about how you look at technology and how it emerges is, was from your book. Could you explain a little bit about your ideas, combinations of technologies, and when things are ready to emerge? Yeah, I spent a long time, about 12 years or so, looking deeply at technology. I came to the conclusion that an economy or economic progress depends not so much on people, not even so much on governments or investments or policies. It depends on technological change. The reason we're different from the economy in Britain in the 1850s is that we have completely new and different technologies. We're not operating with steam engines anymore. We have all sorts of novel technologies since that. So an economy keeps changing. It forms from its technologies. And so I start to ask my question, how do the technologies form? And for me, this was a revelation. I discovered I wasn't the first to think about combination. It goes back to a guy called Thurston in 1880, talking about steam engines. So there's a history of that idea. But what I did in my book, The Nature of Technology, was to work out how novel technologies come into being. And the existing toolbox of technologies keeps coming up with new combinations that are useful technologies. So we have all these novel technologies forming a toolbox for further combinations. So it's all combinations forming from previous combinations. Yeah, every time I look at, at an iPhone, I, I think of your ideas because an iPhone was just a, something that was ready to come together with the screens such as they were and the batteries in the right time and the chipsets and all that come together to make a new novel thing and now they have their own ecosystem. That's right, uh, precisely. Better said than I could have. <laughs> Through all of this, do you see people as fundamentally rational or irrational? Neither. 
I think in nearly all economic situations, rationality is not well defined. Let me explain why. <laughs> Suppose I have a startup here in Silicon Valley, and I know 19 other people are launching similar startups in the same space. I don't know what they're going to do. So in that case, rationality is not well defined because we simply don't know. If you don't know what other people are going to do, if you don't know in the stock market what other investors are going to do, then the problem of being rational is ill-defined. If a logical problem is not well-defined, there's no rational solution. I'm not saying you throw darts. What you do instead of being rational or irrational, you try to make sense of the problem. So what we see here in Silicon Valley in a fast-moving, changing economy is that people are trying to make sense of the situation. And the people who make better sense earlier on do better. But as they make sense, the situation changes. So in the real stock market, there's no rational solution. So the game in the market is not to act rationally. That's not well defined. The game is to see if you can make sense out of what's a quite nebulous situation and make better sense than other people. So what other types of literature do you enjoy? You've mentioned that you, you are a, a literate person. What are some of your favorite books? Gosh, book Blood Meridian, obviously, up there. Book by Haldor Laxness, the Icelandic author, called Independent People. He wrote it in Icelandic, it was translated very beautifully into English, and I, I thought that's a staggeringly good book. I read The Raj Quartet by Paul Scott, two or three years ago, beautifully, beautifully done. But I think that personally in my life, I'm fascinated by, not so much by literature per se, or by writing per se, but what fascinates me and is deep in my Irish DNA is the idea of a story. And what I do, in economics is I view anything I talk about as a story. Uh, the story gets told maybe mathematically or algorithmically, but to me it's still a story. So imagine the following situation. Imagine this, imagine that. And then you set all the pieces working. It's not I'm concerned with words, I'm concerned with stories that are told about the economy or about some aspect of systems. What's most exciting to you? Where is your work going to take you next? I think that as economics becomes more sophisticated and as it pushes ahead, this new wave of economics is seeing the economy as based on human behavior and also based on groups of players vying in an ecology. And it turns out that that point of view is not quite new. Political economists of 150 years ago looked at an economy that way. They were comfortable looking at things that way. I'm thinking of people like John Stuart Mill, uh, Ricardo, others that era. And so I think economics is getting back to the idea of story. Uh, every part is affecting every other part. 
that the economy is open-ended, that rational behavior in general is not well-defined. So the bottom line here is that as economic theory progresses and starts to see the world more in formation terms or more as an ecology of players in the economy, it's coming back to and rediscovering the political economy of 150 years ago. For me, that's extremely exciting. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, the prospect of getting back to a time when political economy was, frankly, more literary and more erudite and, and so forth, uh, it was a pretty good time, I thought, as well. I'd love to see some more of it. I think it's coming. Good for you. <laughs> Well, my guest today has been Dr. Brian Arthur. Brian, thank you so much again for joining us. Oh, I'm delighted. In particular, I'm delighted to talk to a literary audience. That's a thrill for me. Scratch that one off my bucket list. Thanks again to Dr. Arthur, and thank you again for listening. I always linger on Dr. Arthur's idea of how technology is created by combining things that already exist. You can quibble with some of the intricacies of that, but the idea explains so much in terms of how we got to computers, smartphones, and the like. So, wherever you may be hearing The Well-Read Investor, please comment, like, and subscribe. It really does help us. You can visit our website, wellreadinvestor.com, or send us an email at wellreadinvestor at fi.com. And if you haven't gotten enough podcasts, may I suggest the Market Insights podcast hosted by my friend and colleague, Naj Sarinavas, for pithy and focused discussion on the biggest issues facing markets right now. As always, we're back in two weeks on August 12th with Professor John Gaddis. And folks, you're not going to want to miss this one. This is a talk about history, the current environment, and what it means for economics and investors. Until then, may all your reading profit your mind and your money. Take care. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. Past performance is no guarantee of future returns. The foregoing is for general informational purposes and should not be regarded as personal investment advice. Nothing herein is intended to be a recommendation or a forecast of market conditions. Rather, it is intended to illustrate a point. Current and future market conditions may differ significantly from those illustrated here. Not all past forecasts were, nor future forecasts may be as accurate as those predicted herein.